Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. E.J. Dion Jr. is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post and university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture here at Georgetown University. He is also co-author of an important and compelling new book published earlier this year called 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. Boy, do we need 100% democracy right now. Today on The Soul of a Nation, we're going to talk with EJ about how universal voting could help, could help alleviate some of the deeper problems plaguing our democracy, including voter suppression, rampant polarization, and political apathy. So EJ, welcome to The Soul of the Nation. As you know from being in my podcast before, my first question is always, how is your spirit today, Jay? Well, my spirit rose the moment I signed on to this podcast. Uh, and uh, no, it's really always a joy to be with you, Jim, and a joy to have you as a colleague at Georgetown. It's fun. We're in faculty meetings all the time. It's very cool. So we get to regularly connect at Georgetown, which is a, a blessing for me. So let's dive into your argument here. First, let's explain to our listeners what is universal voting, how does it work, and why is it a good idea? Well, I'm very grateful that you invited me to talk about this. And one of the main purposes of this book, which I wrote with my dear colleague, Miles Rappaport, who was former Secretary of State in Connecticut. Actually, they call him the Secretary of the State in Connecticut. But we wrote this book because we are trying to change the conversation on voting rights in the United States for the better. We got interested in this idea from sort of the same purpose and in different ways. In my case, it partly came from a long involvement with Australia and Australian politics. And Australia has had this system of the sort we recommend for the United States for 100 years. And I dare say there are few policy proposals that have 100 years of proof of concept. We believe that creating a legal and civic requirement that everybody votes is the best way to defend voting as a right. In Australia, they have a system where you have to vote, but they make it as easy as possible for people to register and to vote. So the result is that about 96% of Australians are registered to vote, and 90% of those registered voters turn out at election time. The penalty is small. We can talk about that. It's much more a nudge than a shove or a hammer. And it creates a very different spirit around elections because everybody knows they are invited into the process. We forget sometimes that one of the greatest victories of the civil rights movement was the end of discrimination against black Americans in serving on juries. But what that meant is that black Americans joined white Americans in being required to serve on juries. The requirement is there because we want jury pools to be chosen from an entirely representative pool of Americans. We think that the electorate should also be a representative pool. And I appreciated your saying at the beginning that this is not just about participation and voting rights. It's also about polarization, because 
In our system right now, the election process resembles a fancy dinner party with an A-list, a B-list, and a C-list. You know, the A-list are people who are registered to vote and are regular voters. The B-list are people who are registered but don't vote that much. And the C-list are people who haven't been able to register or haven't gotten around to it. That group, by the way, includes a lot of young people who move around a lot more than older people do. And our system makes it very hard on young people. In this system, politicians spend all their time with the A-list. That means they do a couple of things. One, they appeal a lot to their base, not making an argument to the broader electorate. And they also try to suppress the other side's base, in some cases through laws that make it harder for certain groups to vote, or in other cases by running really nasty campaigns just to discourage the other side's voters uh, from voting. This system says no, Everybody is in the system and politicians have to talk to everybody. I don't know how many of your listeners enjoy uh, Michael Connolly's great uh, Harry Bosch novels. He's a police detective. There's a TV show about it. Harry Bosch's personal slogan is everybody counts or nobody counts. And I've thought often that that is the underlying idea behind our proposal. I love that everybody counts or nobody counts. Let's pick up on the polarization. I also love, love Australia. But one thing I love about what Australia do at election time is they have these post-voting barbecues where after people vote, they go to a barbecue together. Even those who voted for different candidates, they have a post-election barbecue, which is the coolest idea for, for civic society. Uh, you've heard about the post election barbecue. And uh, that to me is a great symbol of what you're talking about here. Well, it is on two levels. Uh, thank you for picking up on that. And and the, uh, the barbecues are now so much part of life that they have started posting online ahead of time where the best food is and where you can find what different menus are at different polling places. And under Australian law, you can vote anywhere in your state. Uh, so you can pick the uh, menu you like best. But there's something else about the post-election food celebrations is that civic groups, school groups use Election Day as a fundraising technique. All these barbecues are designed to raise money for schools and other civil society institutions. And so you see a kind of direct link between the democratic process and building civil society in the country and in neighborhoods and in cities and towns across the country. And the thing about this system, a lot of people, when we've, my, when Miles and I have presented the book, there are some people who say, well, wouldn't people who don't vote now be less informed? Well, first of all, we think that's a profoundly anti-democratic argument on its face, because who is to judge who is informed and who is not informed. And we know that so-called literacy tests uh, were used. They were mostly phony literacy tests were used to exclude uh, certain people in the South, black Americans from voting altogether. But the other thing that Australia shows is that when voters know they will have to participate, when they know they are invited in, they spend time informing themselves on the election. I quote in the book, uh, Kim Beasley, the former leader of the Australian Labor Party, he held just about every job in the government except prime minister. He, he has been hanging around at polling places since he was a kid. He said, you can tell people who go in and are political junkies and follow everything and 
voters who probably are brought into the process by the requirement to vote. But he said, in every case, they clearly are people who care about what they're doing, who pay attention to what they're doing. So I think what's important is to see that just as in jury duty, the obligation to serve is also an invitation to serve. In the same way, creating voting as an obligation by law uh, is also an invitation to everybody. And it says, we want everybody to help make the important decisions. Wow. Well, I want our listeners to visualize a post-election barbecue meal that people who voted differently enjoy each other as neighbors and not enemies. And we're all reading this new polling that says people now are choosing their friends more based on their politics, uh, their party. So it's a wonderful thing to visualize, uh, almost a celebration of democracy with a great meal, but also to reemphasize that we are neighbors first and not just always adversaries. And you argue that universal voting could also change the way politicians run their campaigns, how they appeal to voters. Explain that. Rather than just appealing to polarized base, your A-list, how this could help raise broader concerns and issues beyond the polarization. Yeah, you know, on those polls about how we are hostile to each other, I think the most, maybe the most revealing is that back in the day, people were very uncomfortable if their kids married outside their religion. Uh, Now there's much more openness about their kids marrying outside their religion. What parents really can't stand is that their kids might marry outside the family's political party. Uh, You know, it just shows how deeply our political divisions have become enmeshed with so many other divisions in our uh, society. A couple of things. Uh, First, this system brings in less ideological voters. Obviously, people who are highly ideological are much more likely to vote than people who are less ideological. And the evidence suggests that the non-voters who would be brought in, you know, they have points of view, they care about issues, but they do not necessarily see them as much through an ideological prism. Secondly, you would not have voter suppression campaigns actively designed to say how utterly terrible the other side is. Campaigns are not designed to persuade anybody. They're designed to persuade the other side to stay home, as I mentioned. And, you know, this does not make campaigns a peaceable kingdom. Uh, Australians have tough elections, too. And democracy is a tough game and can be a tough game. But I think it takes some of the edges off when politicians know that everybody is going to be voting and there's no point in suppressing the vote. By the way, you also would free up an awful lot of political money and reduce uh, some of the requirements of the campaigns because right now an awful lot of money is spent in campaigns on voter turnout. And when everyone is required to vote, you do not have the hundreds of millions of dollars of expenses in the turning out uh, your people. So I think that an electorate that includes everybody really requires candidates to speak differently than our current system of primarily mobilizing uh, the base does. The last thing the Australians have, which we talk about in the book, and both Miles and I support, although our book is directed at uh, universal voting, not this reform, But they also have what the Australians call preferential voting, what is sometimes called the transferable vote, where you order your candidates on the ballot. So you pick your first choice, you put a one next to your first choice, a two next to your second choice, and so on. 
This encourages candidates to seek coalitions before a single vote is cast. You have to appeal not only to those who put a one next to your name, but to people who might prefer another party to yours, but in general might prefer you to the other alternatives on the ballot. And that too, I think, encourages a different kind of politics. I hear a lot of young people, my own my own two sons, have laid out for me the why ranked voting would be good and decrease the polarization and let people choose among a lot of candidates and put them in their preferable order. By the way, the, the, one of the good things about ranked choice voting is that let's say you are a green or you are a libertarian. You may want to vote one for the Green Party, but you do not want the Republicans to win over the Democrats. So you would rank the the Democrats second, say hypothetically. Similarly, certain kinds of libertarians may prefer the libertarians, but in a given district prefer a Republican. You can put a two next to the Republican. What it does is it gets rid of the idea that you're wasting your vote by saying what you really, really think. And uh, this I think sort of preserves the broad two-party system, but it allows other voices into the conversation more easily. And I think at this point, that would be very useful. In the last Australian election, there were a group of women, they were all women candidates, they were fairly conservative on certain economic issues, but they were very, very strongly in favor of action against climate change. And they became known as the teal independents, teal being a color that combines blue, the traditional conservative color, with green, the environmental color. And they won in five or six districts uh, that were would never have voted for the Labor Party, but were prepared to say, we're not happy with where the conservatives are on climate. That was a very useful message that voters in those districts were able to send. That relates to uh, what you often hear in this country. I've often had people come up to me and say, you know what, the kind of thing that you believe in and that you call for, and that would win 25, 30% of the vote in America. So this idea of bringing more voices in is very powerful and provocative. So how does this relate to the parliamentary option that we see around the world? My colleague, Miles, uh, my co-author, Uh, likes to say that uh, we think every voice should be heard and every voice should be heard the way people intend it to be heard. And that's where the combination of uh, universal voting and ranked choice voting could work together. The parliamentary option has an awful lot of benefits to it. And I think given the distemper in our politics now, a lot more people are open to the parliamentary option. But we could make a presidential system with a congressional system as we have it work uh, with a number of reforms. Um, Miles and I in our book make a point of saying we are making a case for universal voting, for requiring everyone to vote. By the way, I should probably describe the system very briefly, just so people know what I'm talking about. Under the Australian system, uh, which is our model, if you don't vote, you get a little notice from the government. If you give any sort of reason back for not being able to vote that's reasonable, you don't get fined. If you do choose to pay the fine, the fine is $20 Australian, which is about $15. We are very careful in our proposal not to repeat what we call the Ferguson problem, what others have called the Ferguson problem. We're not trying to 
pile fines onto people. So this is not a criminal fine. It can't be increased. There's no interest or anything. And you can pay the fine with an hour of community service. So again, I want to emphasize what we're proposing here is a nudge. And uh, only 13% of Australian non-voters end up having to pay the fine anyway. And that's the kind of system we envision here. But we note that we don't think our one proposal is a cure-all. We're not like those 19th century elixir salesmen, this will cure all that ails you. And we, at the end of the book, say we support a number of reforms, including an end to the Electoral College. We're seeing all the problems that the Electoral College causes us, not to mention that it's increasingly likely that the popular vote will be out of line with the electoral vote because of the way people are moving around. The Senate, as we have it, is one of the most unrepresentative bodies in a democracy in the world, unrepresentative in the sense that when uh, Wyoming and California have the same exact representation in the Senate, you know, there's something highly undemocratic about that, a ratio of 70 to one in the populations of those two states. So we think there are a lot of reforms that could make our system work. Uh, realistically, I don't see our embracing a parliamentary democracy anytime soon, but you do see its advantages. It becomes easier for a party to win an election and govern and be held accountable. But I think a lot of repairs to our system, getting rid of the Senate filibuster is another, could make the system work just fine. So let's get back to the voting. You mentioned the issue of voter suppression. As you know, EJ, the 2020 election saw some of the highest voter turnout in recent American history, with nearly two-thirds of eligible voters casting a ballot. In part, that was because states made voting easier in response to the pandemic. But since 2020, as you well know, 19 states have passed laws making it harder to vote, largely in response to the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. And it seems like we're moving in the opposite direction from universal voting to make it harder to vote. And, you know, some of us are deeply involved in that battle on voter suppression. You would say that this system would take voter suppression away? We, we do, because by its very nature, if everyone is required to vote, then every institution's obligation is to make it as easy as possible for people to carry out their uh, civic duty. Uh, and we propose a series of reforms that we call gateway reforms that we think they broadly resemble the measures that were in the Freedom to Vote Act, you know, early voting, same-day voter registration, and a variety of other ways of making registration easier, uh, early in-person voting, all, you know, drop boxes, all the rest that help create that big turnout. And we talk a lot about what happened in 2020. It's a terrible irony, and that's, uh, that's a soft word to use, that we had enormous success in 2020 in making it easier for people to vote. And voters responded when we made it easier for them to vote. I always like to say that we should be embracing a further change to make it easier for people to vote. And the fact is, we are becoming two nations when it comes to voting, because as you said, according to the Brennan Center, 19 states have made it harder to vote since 2020, but 25 states have made it easier to vote. And I think we should acknowledge that we're trying to build on good news. It's not all bad news out there. The number of states with election day registration, as we point out in the book, went from six in the year 2000 to 21 in 2020. 
early person voting went from 22 states to 43 states. No excuse absentee balloting went from 22 states to 34 states. You know, so we've made real progress and we're trying to build on that progress. And at the same time, you're entirely right. We have to fight against what's happening in so many states. Texas and Florida are pretty notable uh, in this respect. Georgia's another where rules have been passed simply to make it harder to vote. That's not what you do if you really believe in democracy. So how optimistic are you that something like this could be passed in this political environment with not only state lawmakers, but the Supreme Court itself chipping away at voting rights? Is this proposal constitutional? Let me go backwards and and take constitutionality first. I'd start by saying I would not in any way presume to predict what this conservative majority on the Supreme Court will do with anything. The way they have gutted the Voting Rights Act is, to me, both unconscionable and, uh, you know, an utter break with precedent. So I don't know how they'll deal with it. But we, Miles and I, had a wonderful group of lawyers whom we worked with who did a lot of work on the question of constitutionality. And we make, I think, a persuasive case that this idea is constitutional and we craft it in a way to make sure it's constitutional. If we were requiring everybody to put an X or mark next to a candidate, in other words, if we were forcing people to pick a candidate, you might make a case that this is unconstitutional because it's a form of compelled speech. But in our system, as in Australia's system, you are free to cast a blank ballot in protest. You are free to write anything you want on the ballot. And then just to make very clear that uh, this is not a form of compelled speech, we would add a none of the above option to the ballot that people, if they chose to, could check that to make very clear that they did not want to vote for any of these candidates. And by the way, we often use that to make the point to people who say, well, isn't not voting a form of protest? And we argue, no, it's not an effective form of protest because no one knows how to read a non-vote, but they would know how to read a none of the above option. They would know how to read a ballot that was cast blank. Donkey voting, it's called in uh, Australia. That would be an effective form of protest. So the the government, we, we have a variety of requirements on citizens, jury duty being a primary one. The obligation to give your kids an education till age 16 is another one. And so we believe this would pass constitutional muster based on past court decisions. In terms of the prospects of this, Miles and I might be either the most honest or dumbest book writers you'll ever encounter because we, in our book, cite polling that shows that right now only 26% of Americans support our idea. Now, We actually thought that was pretty good, uh, given that no one has ever made a systematic case uh, for this before. Moreover, we found that when you put together those who support the idea, those who aren't certain, and those who are only, you know, who are not strongly opposed to it, who still are open to it, you've got about half of the public open to it. Interestingly, before this polling was done, before Trump launched his war on the democratic process, Republicans were almost as likely to support this system as Democrats, and Republicans and Democrats were equally likely as to say that voting is both a duty and a right. So we think there's plenty of openings to make the case. And we asked people what their objections were, and we tried to meet them in our 
uh, arguments, you know, mostly on how the system would work because people had certain practical objections that we try to meet. We don't expect this to uh, be enacted tomorrow morning, although we had the very nice experience that after appearing on Morning Joe, Congressman John Larson of Connecticut saw us and said, this is a good idea, looked at the book and introduced the Civic Duty to Vote Act in uh, Congress. So it does exist now as a bill in Congress. But where we think we can make some progress is in the states and in localities where localities have quite a lot of freedom to enact measures like this. There are 13 states that give cities and counties quite a bit of authority to pass opportunity advancing voter measures. One of my favorite things in the book is an appendix uh, which uh, gives the text of the bill as it was introduced in Connecticut to show that, you know, this can be done. Here's a model. The bill was introduced by one of my former Georgetown students, a young state senator named Will Haskell, who was elected to the state Senate at age 22 in Connecticut in 2018, right after graduating from Georgetown. So there is interest in it out there. There is support, and um, we want to build on it. So not only is this proposal, universal voting, applicable to presidential elections and congressional, but also state and local, and you think it might start there, might start in local elections or even state elections and kind of move up. Exactly. And, and it could start, a state could require uh, universal voting for all offices if they wanted, including presidential and congressional elections, or they could do it in their local elections to start out with. One form of experimentation might be to try it in um, school board races. I have a particular dream, which is I'd like a Republican state and a Democratic state to try it in tandem. My candidates are Vermont uh, and uh, Utah, which tend to be somewhat less polarized in their politics and have been open to other forms of reform. That's one path there. There are states like Alaska and uh, Maine that have been very open to electoral experimentation with, for example, ranked choice voting. Those states might be interested in it. Cities like Minneapolis have tried uh, experiments of this sort. So those are the kinds of places uh, to start out with. But I very much hope that we can get this idea in circulation, not just in democratic areas that have tended to have more expansive voting. I'd like to see it tried in uh, Republican states that are open to it. There are going to be a lot of people uh, in, a, in a world where people have found the state calling for life-saving vaccinations coercive. There's a real fear of the coercive power of the state. You're saying it's less compulsory voting than universal, but it's, it's a nudge. It, how do we change that mindset of moving from coercion to nudge. What we argue is number one, and the reason we call it universal voting and not compulsory voting is not just because universal sounds nicer, but because, as I said earlier, you are not required to put a mark next to any name. We're not requiring people to pick candidates if they don't like any of the candidates on the ballot. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is we believe that there are certain forms, certain civic requirements that we have come to accept that make our democracy work better and more fairly that actually expand freedom. Again, jury duty is probably the most telling 
And we quote Charles Ogletree, the great civil rights lawyer and Harvard professor about jury duty saying, you know, juries give ordinary people extraordinary power. That's the same is true of elections. Elections give ordinary people extraordinary power. But to answer that libertarian objection, and there, you know, it's a strong one in the United States, we actually go a couple of steps farther than Australia. You could apply under our system with that we suggest for conscientious objector status. If you have a deep moral opposition to participating in elections, that's true of some religious groups, it's true of other people, uh, you could get conscientious objector status under the plan we propose. So between the none of the above option and the conscientious objector status, we really try to deal with the objection people have uh, with uh, coercion. But in the end, we would argue that people do accept a variety of obligations in their life that are legally imposed. And we think this is one that if we make voting as easy as possible, is actually probably less of an inconvenience to people than serving on a jury is. So f- let's end finally on an even deeper note here. EJ, you and I have talked about this phrase, we need a theology of democracy. I believe voting rights are sacred. We had Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock here at Georgetown for our opening event at the center. He spoke about the idea of one person, one vote as the covenant we have with each other as Americans. Is there an argument to be made that universal voting codifies the promise of that covenant that would make the promise real and tangible? There's something at stake deeper here than just partisan politics. But unless we go deeper into our civic faith and the moral principles of our faith, that we'll never achieve, in particular, a multiracial democracy. So how could this help codify the promise of this covenant. You know, one of the core principles of, uh, I'll, I'll cite Christianity and use Catholic social thought here, we are at Georgetown, but it's really, I think, true of uh, Judaism and it's it's within Islam and a lot of other traditions is the equal dignity of every person as a creature of God. And the equal dignity of every person has been central to so much of the social teaching of my own Catholic Church and within many, many strains of the Christian tradition. And universal voting is a way to codify our profound belief in the equal dignity of every person and the right of every person to a voice in the decisions that affect their country, their community, and their lives. Now, we have to be honest about this, that religious people have been arguing about democracy for a long time. And within all our traditions, there are anti-democratic forces, theocratic forces in some cases that would posit a certain rule by a certain religious elite as preferable. There are other anti-democratic views that would posit some other group as lifted up above everyone else. Going back to, for example, the thinking of Jacques Maritain, the great French philosopher who was really central in changing views within the Catholic Church about democracy, he was also central in the writing of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. People like Maritain and both Reinhold and Richard Niebuhr have argued that while democracy is not necessarily rooted all the way back in all our theological traditions, It is a logical and necessary step 
toward embracing and guaranteeing our equal dignity under God. And um, as you and I have talked about, I think at this moment, when you have forms of Christian nationalism out there, when you have opposition to universal voting rights, it's a good time uh, for people to revisit the arguments about democracy and to make clear that there are there's a strong political case and there's a strong moral case for democracy but i think you and i both believe there's also a strong theological case for democracy for more soul of the nation updates don't forget to subscribe rate and review and follow me on twitter at jim wallace if you like blessings for the soul of the nation thank you all